The Tiger Tamer Who Went to Sea from History Extra charts the life of a remarkable Victorian, Britain's original long-distance wheelbarrow pedestrian. New episodes are out every Thursday or listen to the whole series immediately ad-free by subscribing to History Extra Plus on Apple Podcasts or listening on historyextra.com. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. The National Women's Soccer League kicks off March 16th on ION. Out in front to Williams. It's a new Saturday night destination featuring the best players in the world. Takes a shot, she scores! See the full schedule and find where to watch at IONNWSL.com. Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, (laughs) That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. People like the Vikings could appear, uh, rampage around for two and a half centuries and then get in their boats and go away again and we everyone could get back to being Anglo-Saxons. It wasn't like that. You know, they came and they stayed and they changed culture, language and society in England, in Scotland, in the British Isles. That was Thomas Williams talking about Viking Britain. Listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine. We're the UK's best selling history magazine, available in print and several digital formats all over the world. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast. Today we're talking about the Vikings with Thomas Williams, who is curator of early medieval coins at the British Museum and author of A Major New History of Viking Britain that's due to be published in just a few days' time. BBC History magazine readers will also be aware that Thomas wrote the cover feature for our latest issue on Forgotten Viking Battles. Putting the questions to him for this podcast was our staff writer Ellie Cawthorn, who caught up with Thomas at his office in the British Museum. So why do you think that the Viking era is such a fascinating period of British history. And why did you want to tackle a new history of this time period? There are lots of ways that that I could answer that question. I think it's an incredibly formative era for not just England, but Britain as well. It's a period of time in which England comes into being for the first time from what had been a patchwork of little kingdoms and... um, that developed out of tribal societies in the earlier, um, the earlier, early Middle Ages. The Viking period is one of consolidation. And it's a period of consolidation that's that's driven largely by 
the uh, invasions, the raids, and the political turmoil that those threw up. So England comes into being, but Scotland as well. So Scotland becomes a nation for the first time in this period. And again, through a similar, though slightly different process that's triggered in part by this this sudden um, eruption of uh, a new people into into these islands. So that's that's one one part of it. I also think the Viking Age is one that that people often look back to, or the early Middle Ages in general. One is a period that people look back to to seek origins for modern sort of national identities. And you see this a lot. I mean, it's it's one of the most misused periods of history. You know, the symbols, the, the the iconography crop up in some of the most unsavoury uh, contexts. Um, so I, I felt like it's something that doesn't really get enough attention, that there is a real history behind this. We don't need to rely on caricatures of the Vikings and particularly when they're being misused for political purposes. And, and so that was that was in my thinking when I was writing. Can you tell us about some of the new research you've undertaken for the book or new approaches you might have taken? Mm. Well, I should say, I mean, the, the book is largely a, a synthesis of, of existing research. In general, I mean, there's been a, 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 a huge amount of groundbreaking research that's been undertaken by others over the last 25 years, not all of which has really filtered into the public consciousness. So that was something I wanted to do, to bring a lot of this um, into an accessible form that people could engage with. Alongside that, there are some really staggering new archaeological discoveries as well. Things like the, the mass grave in Dorset of 50 or so decapitated Scandinavians in a in a pit. You know, it is a a, a war grave, if you like, a, a mass execution burial. So things like that that bring people face to face with the realities of, of the period. The sort of really visceral violence that that was meted out, and not just by Vikings to Anglo Saxons, as it's usually framed, but also the other way around. And that's something else that the book has tried to to get at: the disentangling of. What do, we, what do we actually mean when we say Anglo-Saxons? What do we mean when we say Vikings? We think of them as sort of monolithic groups, but actually um, those ideas of ethnicity and identity were very much more complicated, particularly by the, the 11th century. Could you give us some examples of that? Well, I mean, one of the, one of the most extraordinary uh, stories from, from the Viking Age is the, the, the story of Alfred the Great's nephew, Athelwald, who rebelled against his uncle um, on, on Alfred's assumption of the throne, uh, feeling as though it should have gone to him. His own father, Athelwald's father, had been, had been king and Alfred took his brother's crown. So he was an aggrieved young man and, and rebelled against Alfred. Um, and after a bit of sort of to and fro, ran off to the so-called Dane law, where uh, it's recorded that he was acclaimed as king of the pagans and king of the Danes. So here you have an individual who is a, you know, a scion of the royal house of Wessex, uh, through and through an Anglo-Saxon, being considered essentially a Viking. So those sorts of identities could mutate very, very rapidly, depending on which side of a political divide you find yourself on. And I think that's true of a lot of other uh, scenarios. We, we know about Athelwald because he was, uh, you know, you couldn't really be more famous and aristocratic than Athelwald. But things like that would have been going on all the time in, in the past of society that we don't have records for. I wonder whether you could give us a sense of a timeline for the Viking Age in Britain, mm. um, for people who might not be familiar with it. Mm. 
Yeah, I think you can think about the Viking Age in terms of fairly discrete phases of activity. So from, for argument's sake, the raid on Lindisfarne through to the 850s, it's predominantly, as far as we know, a pattern of predatory raids on coastal communities, becoming increasingly serious as time goes by. But, but nevertheless, they're not hanging around. They're coming, they're taking what they want, and they're going again. And the same applies in Ireland um, and, as far as we know, in, uh, around the Scottish coastline as well. From 850s, 860s onwards, there's a huge shift. Uh, and what is known in the literature as the Viking Great Army or the Great Heathen Army, it's the, the Mickelhera, the, the Great Horde, um, appears in East Anglia. And that marks a big shift because they they first begin to stay over the winter, which means they're able to live off the land. They're not going home again. They've invested in, in whatever it is they're after. And they start systematically taking over or knocking out the traditional Anglo-Saxon kingdom, starting with Northumbria, moving on to East Anglia. They have a go at Mercia, come back, have a go at Wessex, go back to Mercia, um, knock out half of that uh, nation, and then back to Wessex again. And in 878 is the, the watershed moment when Alfred the Great defeated the, the army led by Guthrum at Eddington. Uh, and that is the end of another phase. And over the course of those, that couple of decades, the, the political geography of Britain is, is radically changed. So from this patchwork, you now have a, a little England comprising sort of you know, the south southwestern counties, um, bit parts of the southeast and bits of uh, the West Midlands. Beyond that is a great swathe of, of the country that is under some sort of Scandinavian control. And quite exactly how that's manifested is, is open still for, for, for considerable interpretation. The next phase, in the literature is often... Uh, conceived of as a, as a reconquest, um, an Anglo-Saxon reconquest of, of England. But, but in reality, you know, the West Saxons had never had any claim to Northumbria or to East Anglia. So it, it's a conquest in actual fact. They're taking over um, until by, you know, the middle of the, the 10th century, you have a very clearly defined English kingdom um, in the grip of the West Saxon Dynasty And those parts of England that had been ruled by Viking leaders are now subject to an English king. It doesn't mean that all those people had suddenly gone home, but they are now part of, a, of, a, of an English nation. Um, the last phase of the Viking Age, I suppose we would say, is the... the again, I, I, I take slight, slight issue with the terminology, but the... It's often referred to as the Second Viking Age, which is the period from 990 onwards or 991 onwards when Viking fleets reappear in England in a, in a, in a, in a, in a big way. Um, and it ushers in another 25 years of endemic warfare that culminates with the takeover of the English kingdom by the Danish royal house. So firstly by Sven Forkbeard, who pops his clogs almost immediately, uh, and then secondly by Knut, and then Knut's sons after him. 
And what we see in the 11th century is the, the creation, albeit very briefly, of a what we, you could call a North Sea empire. It's the bringing together of England with Denmark, with uh, Norway, parts of Sweden, under the umbrella of the Danish royal house, particularly under Canute himself. Um, the problem with conceiving of this as a, a Viking, as part of the Viking Age, is that Canute himself would not have seen himself in those terms. Canute was a Christian king. He took great pains to present himself to his new subjects in England as very much uh, a traditionally styled English ruler. You know, he minted coins. He had portrayed himself in crown, giving donations to the church. It's a wonderful illustration in the Winchester Liber Vitae of Canute and his wife, um, presenting this enormous gilt cross to the altarpiece, um, you know, looked down on by, by Christ and, and the angels. So he's not the sort of pagan warlord of two centuries earlier. Um, so it's problematic to see him in any real sense as a Viking. It, it, if anything, it's a culmination of the process of assimilation and acculturation that Scandinavians, uh, that, 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 that characterised the, the experience of Scandinavians in Britain and England in particular over that, that longer period. Can you give us some examples? Well, one of the really interesting things from my point of view, given the, the work that I do at the museum, looking at the, the early medieval coinage, is to see the, the nomenclature changing, the, the names of individuals. And one of the interesting things about the, the late Anglo-Saxon coinage is that it's routinely stamped with the name of the moneyer, so the person who is responsible for minting those coins, which gives us an amazing um, snapshot of, the, of the, the naming conventions. And there are dozens, if not hundreds, of Scandina named Scandinavians, or rather people named with Scandinavian names, who appear as moneyers during the, particularly the later Viking Age. So you can see very easily just from that how Scandinavian people are taking on these sort of middle-class roles, if you can call them middle-class roles, but they're not quite aristocratic, but they are people of substance. Um, so, yeah, they're, they're absolutely active in, in, in society, producing coins under royal authority, particularly in, in the parts of, of Britain that were under Danish or, or rather under Scandinavian rule, but also later on throughout England. And, in fact, you have people with Scandinavian names um, appearing on the coinage until the reign of Richard the Lionheart. So, you know, huge impact. I mean, what we can't say is that just because you've got a Scandinavian name, you are certainly a Viking uh, and, and possibly not even somebody of Scandinavian heritage. But that fashion, that idea of a Scandinavian heritage is, becomes incredibly powerful and absolutely we see it throughout society. So we see Vikings integrating or assimilating into British communities, mm. Anglo-Saxon communities rather, very successfully. Yeah, certainly, certainly. And um, one of the things that the Vikings seem to be best at, in fact, is, is sort of assimilating themselves out of existence. So, I mean, one fascinating example of this is the, um, the experience of Scandinavian settlers in East Anglia. In the 870, uh, 871, um, the Viking Great Army come to East Anglia and martyred the king of East Anglia, Edmund, um, later, uh, uh, later uh, Saint Edmund, uh, the patron saint of Bury St Edmunds. Um, and there's a wonderful story about how he was 
shot with arrows and decapitated and uh, his head was thrown into a bramble patch and oh yeah, all the rest of the sort of typical <laughs> medieval hagiography. Um, now, when the Vikings then settled in East Anglia, the the rulers found themselves in charge of a, of a population that was largely Christian, it was largely Anglo-Saxon. And within a generation or two, they're minting coins in the name of St Edmund. So it's a, a memorial coinage to the saint, which is a remarkable turnaround. So they, they go from martyring him to commemorating him. And that's pretty typical of, of that, that sort of level of, of pragmatic um, assimilation. And you see that a lot. The Viking Age, I think, has been heavily mythologised. Mm. We're, we're all familiar from school with the image of, you know, the horned helmet, which now we know is not correct, and the Viking raider jumping mm. off his ship on British shores. Yeah. What do you think are some of the most common misconceptions you come across about the Viking Age and potentially the most damaging? One, one of the misconceptions that, that I find frustrating is the idea that they were somehow just like us because it fosters the idea that um, we can find something in the Viking Age to validate present identities. Uh, and very often that's a white Northern European sense of belonging. I think what I'm getting at really is that the Vikings were strange. The Vikings were weird. There was something odd about them. They wouldn't be recognisable to us. We wouldn't feel comfortable in their presence. Um, at the same time, in some quarters, there's still this lingering sense that the Vikings just went away. They went home somehow. And that also plays into our ideas about um, identity and about immigration and about culture and how cultures operate through time. That, you know, uh, people like the Vikings could appear... Uh, rampage around for two and a half centuries and then get in their boats and go away again and we, everyone could get back to being Anglo-Saxons. It, it wasn't like that. You know, they came and they stayed and they changed culture, language and society in England, in Scotland, in the British Isles and across uh, huge swathes of Western Europe um, irrevocably. Um, so the idea that we can look back to that period as somehow a defining moment in, in, in determining um, modern identities and ethnicities is totally false because they were constantly in flux. So that's a big issue that I wanted to address in the book. Other misconceptions are legion. I mean, the idea that sort of the <laughs> typical Viking is a, is a manly man with a, with a beard and all he does all day long is drink beer and and fight and so on. And, yeah, I mean, th there are aspects of Viking culture that did celebrate those things. But also people are often shocked to discover we have first-hand accounts of Viking men who wore eyeliner, that they invested heavily in their clothing, you know, big baggy silk trousers, sort of MC hammer pants, you know, these sorts of images that are quite unfamiliar, uh, putting it put into a Viking context, you know, the, the evident care that people took over their their personal grooming, you know, combs and tweezers are things that are found in Viking greys, male and female, um, in abundance. And there's a huge you know, comb-making industry in, in York. I mean, this is one of the things that was, was, was prized. You know, Over-engineered objects, you don't need to build a comb out of hundreds of different bits, but they, but they did and decorated them very finely. So these, these sorts of ideas are, are, 
don't don't sit so easily with the the sort of stereotype of this sort of hairy, dirty, oafish Viking warrior. And, and I'm sure some of them were like that, but clearly not all of them. Perhaps you could tell us a bit about Anglo-Saxon reactions to Viking arrivals and what these um, could tell us about the state of Britain and England mm. at the time. Mm. Well, the problem we have, I mean, this is this is the problem for medieval history in general, really, is that the vast majority of the accounts we have are clerical. So they come from churchmen who have uh, a lot invested in painting um, Viking attacks as the wrath of God made manifest. And it's great. I mean, Alcuin uses it to, to castigate all and sundry for their previous bad behaviour. And he's saying, well, look, you know, God has allowed this to happen because you've been cutting your hair like the heathens or you haven't been doing enough fasting and praying and you haven't been keeping God's laws in the right way and you've been talking through dinner in the monasteries and all that sort of thing. You know? So that's a bit of a problem and it, it, it colours pretty much all of the reactions to, to the Viking phenomenon uh, in one way or another, um, particularly because monasteries and churches are an obvious source of loot. You know, they're pretty well undefended storehouses stuffed full of gold and silver, um, lots of defenceless monks to take away as slaves, so they bear the brunt of a lot of a lot of the sort of aggressive parts of Viking activity. Um, we get a much clearer picture of the period in general from the late 9th century onwards when the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle starts to be written and starts to be written contemporaneously with events and although it's still very much a kind of victim's narrative uh you start to see a little bit new, more nuance in in how vikings are portrayed and by the 11th century it, it's completely changed because you're seeing then viking warlords who are fighting with anglo-saxon kings so ethelred ethelred the unready um uh, uses a chap called thor called the tall as a mercenary and they fight together against the Danes who are invading. So it becomes a lot more fluid from, from that point onwards. But also part of the problem is that we just don't have reliable source materials for large parts of, of Britain. So the sources for Scotland are very thin. For Northumbria they, they, uh, and Mercia, they are very, very patchy indeed. So we can see through things like place names and personal names and the evidence of sculptural styles and artistic traditions coming in that there is a, a significant amount of integration and assimilation going on, but we don't have it recorded. So although you know, there's no question about it, if your village or your monastery is being pillaged and burned, your, your attitude towards the Vikings was overwhelmingly negative, and quite rightly. Um, but it was also more complicated in other places and other times. Uh, we just don't have direct window onto that. And why was Britain such an attractive target? Britain certainly was an attractive target, and partly that was to do with the, the, uh, the accessibility of lootable, portable wealth in its monasteries. Um, and in that regard, Ireland suffered of a similar, although in some ways quite different experience, but, but they too had uh, wealthy monasteries. Um, the demand for slaves also drove a great, great deal of this sort of acquisitive predatory activity. Um, but to think about this is to place the whole 
um, experience of Vikings in, in the British Isles into the wider Viking network of trade and exchange because slaves taken from Britain were being transported to Scandinavia but also further east through the Baltic into Russia, down the Russian river systems, to the Caspian Sea and to slave markets in the Islamic world. Um, silver from the Islamic world was flowing north and west into Scandinavia but also into Britain. We have Islamic dirhams turn up in, in, in uh, vast quantities in Scandinavia, but also in significant quantities in Britain. Um, but then beyond that, you have the, the whole experience of the Vikings in the North Atlantic, in Iceland, in Greenland, and uh, in North America as well. We have documented raids of the Vikings in North Africa and in the Mediterranean. So it really was um, bigger than, than just Britain. But having said that, what what... Britain did offer was um, a political situation that was exploitable. And those raids of the late 8th century exposed, I think, some of the weaknesses um, of the, uh, the British kingdoms. And where can we still see the influence of the Vikings today? Well, it's ever- <laughs> this is the thing. I mean, it's, it's everywhere. It's everywhere. And disentangling it from what we think is Anglo-Saxon is also often impossible. Um, the, the clearest, the clearest uh, signpost, if you pardon the, the, the pun, is in place names. Um, all across the north of England and East Anglia, there are myriad place names that use Old Norse naming elements. Um, Thorpe place names, for example, uh, by endings so grimsby is often uh often used as a case in point it, it, you know it's farm of a man called grimmer which is a scandinavian name and these are legion there are loads and it doesn't take long to find them if you want to look for them um so that's that's sort of the clearest and most obvious but also in in, in our language I mean, there are a huge number of old norse words in our in our language and very very common words and i think that's the thing um you know Words like window and egg and sister, you know, things we use all the time. A lot of our pronouns, you know, the fundamental building blocks of language come out of Old Norse. So to have that kind of influence, their, their cultural impact must have been enormous. And, and in ways we can't see, but we, we have the evidence now in the words we use. So it's a nice way to think about it, I think, that the Viking past is is with us, it, it remains within our culture and it's had an enormous impact globally. So the, the um, influence of the English language carries with it all these little seeds of Old Norse everywhere it goes, which is a fascinating idea. That was Thomas Williams. Viking Britain, an exploration, is out this Thursday, the 7th of September, published by William Collins. And as I mentioned earlier, you can read a piece by Thomas on Forgotten Viking Battles in the September issue of BBC History magazine, which is currently on sale. This month's edition also contains articles on the death of Diana, Princess of Wales, Queen Victoria's turbulent marriage, medieval Europe's unholiest monk and a whole lot more. Look out for our September issue in all good news agents and in our many digital formats. Meanwhile, Thomas Williams has also just been added to the lineup for our Winchester History Weekend, which takes place next month from the 6th to 8th of October, and features talks from dozens of the country's finest historians. 
Tickets for Thomas's event and some of the others are still available. So if you'd like to come along, please head to historyweekend.com for tickets and information. Okay, so that's about This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. Earn up to 3% daily cashback on every purchase every day. Then grow it at 4.50% annual percentage yield when you open a savings account with Apple Card. Visit apple.co forward slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card subject to credit approval. Savings available to Apple Card owners subject to eligibility. Savings accounts provided by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, member FDIC. Terms apply. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. That all for today, but please do join us again on Thursday when we'll be discussing our History Hot 100 poll. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future editions. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, which is full of history articles, quizzes, image galleries and more. Plus, it's where you can download hundreds of previous episodes of this podcast.